Welcome to On Scripts Biblical World, a podcast exploring the history, archaeology, geography, and cultures of the Bible. Visit us at onscript.study/biblicalworld. Hey, OnScript listeners, welcome back to the podcast. This is another cross-listed Biblical World podcast episode. Please go over and subscribe to Biblical World wherever you're listening to this podcast. And we've got an episode today with Mark Jansen about his work at the temples at Karnak in Egypt. Super interesting stuff, and I hope you enjoy this. It's hosted by Chris McKinney. Uh, Mark and Chris are both co-hosts on the Biblical World podcast. If you're able to support what we're doing here to help get this podcast, this new one off the ground, uh, go on over to onscript.study forward slash donate, and you can support us monthly, or just give us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to the podcast to share the word. We'd appreciate both of those things, and uh, are, are mostly just grateful for you listening, and we are thrilled by the enthusiasm of so many of you for digging into the world of the Bible, and hope that this podcast is helpful to that end. So we'll be cross-listing the first few episodes on the OnScript feed, and then eventually um, just directing you over to that podcast, and we'll continue regular programming here at OnScript. We've got some great episodes lined up for that as well. Okay, thanks for listening. Welcome to the OnScript, the Biblical World podcast. Uh, Today I am joined by uh, Dr. Mark Jansen, uh, who is an Egyptologist who works at uh, Louisiana College uh, in Louisiana. Um, and Mark and I go back a bit, um, maybe for the last two or three years, we've gotten to know each other and done a couple of different projects together. Uh, we've worked on a large volume uh, about the historical geography of the wilderness wanderings and the Exodus, which uh, we'll give you more information about that when the time comes. Uh, but Mark and I have enjoyed uh, writing an article on that. And again, we have this book coming up. And Mark has a number of other things that he's worked on, including a very interesting book that's coming out, I think, in the next month or so on the date of the Exodus. Uh, and not so much just one view, but in fact, five views of the date of the Exodus. And so, Mark, welcome. Uh, and I hope we can do this much more as we think about the connections between uh, Egyptology and the biblical world. So yeah, why don't you go ahead and talk about yourself a bit and also maybe maybe tell us why it is that you became an Egyptologist in the first place. Sure. Thanks for having me. I think we'll have uh, a number of productive and uh, engaging conversations here. Uh, it's funny you brought up the book. I actually, just before I sat down, I saw this box at my front door and it's actually my copies of the book, Five Views on the Exodus is what it's called. And it started out kind of as a, as a lot of chronology, and there is a lot on the date there, but actually the way the book unfolds, it's also about like the historicity of the Exodus, the sort of different philosophical approaches, whether it's it's literal history or cultural memory. And so, yeah, it's just kind of funny that it happened to come out right before I got my copies of it right before I came on here. Um, and it comes out officially April 13th. So, But as for me, I became an Egyptologist in a kind of a wandering journey itself. A lot of people you ask this, they'll say, oh, I loved Egypt ever since I was a little kid. 
And while that's true, it's not for me that unique. Like I loved Rome and Greece and the Old Testament. Like I loved all the ancient stuff. And I uh, I went to Trinity Evangelical Divinity School to get my master's, thinking I'd get an MA in Old Testament. I took one archaeology class with Jim Hoffmeyer that first semester. Absolutely loved it and saw so much value in how it he was able to contextualize scripture and bring up all these things I'd never even heard of. And then he would have us read different sides of the debate. And I saw, oh, wow, there's a real need for educated uh, people who are willing to engage in this data and for both, you know, as far as the academic world goes, but also in trying to explain it to a larger audience, which very few of us do. Um, and then, you know, he just kind of talked to me about doing Egyptology for my PhD work as you kind of get, as you know, more specific. And uh, I took a semester of Acadian, thought, nope, back to hieroglyphs, I shall go. As soon as it got into chicken scratch, I was like, I can't memorize all this. This is for someone way smarter than me. You and, need pictures. Uh, yeah, I need pictures and yeah, exactly big pictures and then little captions. And that's as far as I want to read. Um, and that's what epigraphy is. No. Um, so <laughs> it was just a good fit for me. Um, and I've always loved uh, all the ancient history, really. But, you know, it's funny. You, you, you specialize in your doctorate, right? You get as, like, specific as possible. I'm like, okay, I am second half of the new kingdom in Egypt. And then it's like, oh, we need you to te- be a generalist anytime you teach. So I'm glad I love all of ancient history because it's served me well. Yeah, that's that's the key is is that you have to be able to connect this to a relevant uh, historical background. And oftentimes when you end up teaching you end up teaching just such a wide variety of things in whatever institution you end up in. And uh, so it's, it's good to, it's good to love it all, but you know, love something the most, uh, which hopefully is what you do your dissertation and your PhD on. Well, I would say congratulations about the, about the book. Uh, And there's nothing like getting that, uh, that parcel on your front door of freshly printed uh, book with your name on it. Yeah, it was pretty Uh, cool. Congratulations. The first and we'll have to we'll have to put the link in the description uh, so people can have yeah, access great. to it. And hopefully, in uh, the coming weeks, we'll be able to actually have a conversation with several in, several of the authors who have presented their case about the the date and the historicity of the Exodus, uh, especially as we get closer and closer to uh, to Passover and Easter itself. And so that's really exciting. And uh, congratulations for that. Yeah. Thanks again. Yeah, so, uh, you know, one of the things that I think you kind of touched on a bit, and I think is a, an important part of um, just biblical study in general, I mean, this podcast is about biblical backgrounds. It's about connections with archaeology, language, and so on. Uh, and then Egyptology itself is just such a humongous field. Uh, you have just this this civilization that's so rich and full it's so visual. Uh, it has. It spans um, thousands of years, and in and of itself, it's just fascinating. Uh, and then you don't even have to bring the Bible in it to to be fascinated by it. Um, but once you add in the fact that so much of what we read in the Bible, really throughout the whole Old Testament Hebrew Bible, and even into the New Testament, it's really interesting that in the Book of Matthew we have. Jesus and Mary and Joseph going down into Egypt. Just so much of it is connected with with Egypt. And one of the things that I think um, 
scholarship often will focus on is the is the connections with Mesopotamia, which are, are very obvious when you open up and read Genesis 1 through 11, especially. And of course, there's many, you know, Mesopotamian connections. But the Egyptological connections are often seen as not being as significant, but they but they are. They're very important. And the thing I've appreciated about your work and the things that we've done together, as well as uh, some of the mentors that you mentioned, is that they've been able to make that relevance between the Egyptological background and and the Bible. Um, and so if you could, if you have even some specific, some examples or you want to elaborate on that, please, please do. So I, I like to lead this with something that's just kind of funny that I think really brings home the point. Egypt is so phenomenally ancient that when Jesus, Mary, and Joseph are in Egypt when he's a boy, the pyramids are roughly 2,500 years old. That means they are older to his time than his time on earth is to our time by 500 years. And I think that speaks to part of the issue when it comes to Egyptology and the Bible and why only with really, I mean, I guess James Henry Breasted and Wilson and a few of those early Egyptologists did it, but it didn't really become a big part of the scholarship until like Kenneth Kitchen and Jim Hoffmeyer was one of my own mentors. And those guys started to really dive in deeply. And it's part of it's just there's so much data from Egypt that many Egyptologists were like, were too busy just sorting out all the Egyptian data that they didn't even want to touch anything involving the Hebrew Old Testament. And then, of course, there's all the, you know, firestorm of debates about certain topics, too. But um, I do think that's changing some, as uh, as I mentioned with the, Kenneth Kitchen, Jim Hoffmeyer. Um, there's several, you know, Michael Hosel does some work there, um, <clears throat> or at least on topics that can relate to both. Or someone like David Falk, I know you're familiar with his really good book on the tabernacle. So I hope that picture will continue to change, because I think the, the elephant in the room here is a philosophical issue, which is... If you subscribe to the idea that the Old Testament is largely written late, which I personally don't, then you're looking for all these Mesopotamian parallels. But if you find all these Egyptian parallels, especially in the Pentateuch, what do you do with them if it's all written late? And so I think there was sort of a head-in-the-sand aspect here about not really examining the Egyptian data, because that then suggests to you that there are at least kernels of truth in authentic Egyptianisms in the Pentateuch makes kind of hard to believe that it's all written later in Babylon to kind of quickly try to generalize on that. Um, so I think the, the the value of studying Egypt, of course, extends past the Exodus event or, um, and, and, or the wilderness wanderings. Of course, they're mentioned several times in historical books, whether we're talking about Nico or, um, you know, Pharaoh's daughter marrying Solomon and all those kinds of things. So I think any culture's background should be treated equally in terms of trying to understand their impact on the on the Old Testament and on ultimately the development of Israel both as a people and then ultimately a nation. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I, I think that there's just a number of of important lines of discussion that need to be had, and and I think it's encouraging to see that there are um, scholars on. Uh, kind of across the spectrum, willing to see these deep connections, especially between a book like uh, the Book of Exodus and, um, and and the Egyptian material. You can uh, you pointed to uh, David Falk's recent book, which I think is absolutely fantastic, The Ark of the Covenant, and it's Egyptian, 
in its in Egyptian context. And Ranan Eichler from Bar Ilan University has done uh, a similar type of thing, uh, looking at uh, King Tut's um, furniture and things along those lines to to draw out and make connections with the Ark of the Covenant. And uh, maybe we'll talk about those in, in future episodes. But I think they're very very uh, significant. And the other thing I really like your point about it being 2,500 years. And I thought we're in 2021 now, maybe by 2,500, the Cowboys or the Bears will actually win another Super Bowl. Yes. Uh, it might take that long. Uh, <laughs> I'm a Cowboys fan. And, At and Mark some is a, point, is a Bears it's bound fan. to happen. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I do so, think it's long worth suffering. Yeah. It's, it's, I think it is worth reiterating just to be totally clear. The picture is definitely changing and pretty substantially about Egypt in the Bible or scholars looking at these comparisons or even something like the Canaanites influenced the Israelites and then oh wait the Canaanites are in turn influenced by New Kingdom Egypt right so I think it's getting much better but I do think you can you can see a gap there prior to say the last 30 40 years yeah yeah and, and I think the other thing about it is is that you're seeing it more with people that don't have a skin in the game in other words you're seeing it not with strictly uh, conservative evangelical circles saying, yeah, these connections are there. You're seeing, I mean, of course you have that, but you're seeing it with Egyptologists that aren't necessarily biblical scholars, don't have faith commitments and that type of thing, which when you have that as kind of a, an outer picture or an outer way of, of looking at the evidence makes it, I think, all the more legitimate and something to really pay careful attention to. So let's transition a bit, and let's talk about the, the project that you are a part of. I'll let you give the, the full name of it, but uh, it's connected with the, the, the Temple at Karnak, which those of you who have not been to the Temple of Karnak, you've not been to what I think is probably the most impressive site in the ancient Near East, if you want to include a Egypt in the ancient Near East. Uh, it's just a, a phenomenal site. I mean, I remember visiting it for the first time, and you go into the Hypostyle Hall, and there's you need seven or eight people to wrap around one of these columns. It's just a, an unbelievable experience. And from what I understand, you get to spend whole weeks of your summer uh, staring at the scratchings on the walls. Uh, can you can you give us some insight into what the project is in general and uh, how, how what, what your specific role is in that? Yeah, so we actually moved the project uh, to the winter because there's not enough shade at our wall in the summer. And it was like, our workday is like 6 a.m. to 10.30. Let's change the season here. Um, so yeah, Karnak is the biggest ancient temple ever built. Uh, you can put Notre Dame inside it four different four times over. I mean, it's just enormous. When I take people to Egypt, they they know about it because like they're going with me, so it's sort of a no-brainer. But then they finally see it, they're like, "Wow, this is even more stupendous than the pyramids." Plus, you can do a lot more at Karnak. Um, and so I think it it doesn't get the press it maybe should. Um, but our project is the Karnak Great Hypostyle Hall project under the direction of Peter Brand, who I studied during my doctoral work at the University of Memphis. I studied under, I should say, and we've maintained a great relationship. And he invited me to um, the project to expand it to cover the uh, western exterior wall of the Court of the Cachet, which is right there up against the Hypostyle Hall. Um, and so we, we kind of around the, we're sort of around the corner from it. And then, uh, yeah, every, every morning we walk in, you can see the sun rising like among the columns and it's like i work here is kind of a crazy thought that i have for those few weeks a year that we're that we're in season 
and we'll put a link in, I, I think, for the website for the overall project for sure in the description hosted by the University of Memphis. But the the project as a whole is uh, it's trying to scientifically record and preserve everything in the hypostyle hall that's inscribed, right? Whether it's the columns themselves, which, as you said, are absolutely massive, or whether it's the walls, which are every, every square inch is basically decorated that survived, or even the architraves, like you look up and you're like, oh, there's another cartouche up there. Um, and then my project is doing the same thing with this wall that's actually very heavily exposed. So a lot of the hypostyle hall has some shade, at least, whereas mine's just out there, sun, wind, there's no protection for the wall. And I think that heightens our um, the value of it, I guess you could say, as at least we're trying to give everybody for the rest of human history a precise recordation of the wall as it was in 2020, let's say, roughly. Um, so it's an epigraphy project, to be clear. It is not archaeological at this point, really, at all. Um, so that's that's the broad overview of what great yeah maybe i can ask some some more specific questions about that and maybe i can try to internalize this for for our our listeners also so the hypo style hall is like one of the main parts of karnak temple it's the most impressive thing that you see and what your project is connected with pharaoh mernepta and I know we've had this conversation before. It's, you can say "cor de la cachet" if you want to sound yeah. uh, French, <laughs> right. or you can you, you know can sound uh, like you're from the from the uh, southern part of the United States and call it "cachet," <laughs> "cor de la cachet." So, yeah. however you like, uh, that's what you are specifically uh, working on, and um, and so I think that's really clear. But what what's um, not necessarily clear uh, is in terms of why um, that that there's a need for it, because from my understanding, there is uh, these uh, th- th- this this uh, epigraphic uh, survey has been done, but it was done from what I understand just using uh, site drawings. Whereas now you're bringing in all kinds of high resolution elements, and and so uh, maybe you can elaborate on that. And then the follow up question to that would be: uh, Have there been times already? where you've seen a difference um, because uh, another, another thing that I think is important for people to think about is it's not only important to, to do this, do you get results immediately, but you're recording something that can then be manipulated in many varieties of ways moving forward um, in, in terms of how technology is going to develop. And so you're creating a type of, 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 of data source that is invaluable not only now, but going down the line. And so my main question is, uh, are there things that uh, you've seen already that you've changed between the original epigraphic surveys and what you see now? And then the second question is, potentially looking you know, to the future, if we could get in Doc Brown's DeLorean uh, and, and go, and, and go to, t- to uh, 2,500, uh, and maybe when Karnak is destroyed, maybe there's an ISIS that starts up and again, and it's destroyed uh, or it's completely weathered. What are maybe some things that we might be able to say in the future? And again, maybe that's a little bit guesswork, but I bet you probably thought about some of those things before. Yeah. So um, for, I'll just speak to my, my wall now, the Western wall of the cache and there's, I think what I love about epigraphy is it's both the old and the new. It's a collision of worlds, right? We're studying ancient material with new technology that is really changing how it's done. Even the, 
University of Chicago house, you know, who they they've done epigraphy for over a hundred years at the absolute top level, are like, okay, we don't have to do it the way we've always done it, thanks to digital, to, you know, epigraphy, and that's really what we're doing now is digital epigraphy. So for us, maybe just to give you a quick look at the process, it started with taking high res, high def photos, all along the wall the first year. Um, and these have to be taken at the ideal lighting condition. You don't just like show up in the morning and just start photographing. For us, that was really 1230 to 1.30 every day. It was photo time. And that's when the sun is kind of off to the side of the wall, but still fairly high up, of course. And it provides a perfect, we call it a raking light. It's almost like taking a font and putting it in bold. So lines that are faint, you can see better and things like that. And then we, you know, take every... If you, you know, you just take 400 pictures, you know, like, and then you, you put those 400 pictures through software that stitches it together and makes an ortho photo. And from there, our work really begins because then we take that into Illustrator or Photoshop, depending on your comfort level with either, and you trace it. Then you take it the next season, you take that drawing back into the field and you collate it in person, making notes about what you got wrong or what, you know, maybe that uh, line needs to be a little rounder or that's sharper or whatever. And so the digital epigraphy allows us to then just go back in, load up the file, move the vector points or tweak the line instead of starting a whole new drawing. So I think it's allowing us to have the same level of detail, but in much less time. And I hope that that, that kind of idea takes off for the field because we could get a lot more recorded and preserved quicker as a result. And then the second part of your question, if I remember right, is what have we seen that's already like different than what was previously published? So on, on the wall that I work on, the only publications were not really epigraphic surveys even. They were just people like Rosinski drawing it at the wall. He's We don't even know if he had ladders or scaffolding, right? And like you have to understand if you took a photo at the wrong angle, it's going to distort the data that you could get. If you're looking up... 20 feet from the ground, there's things you're going to miss, right? Like to actually be scientific, your view has to be square with good lighting, like all the time, which is also why we don't just take a photo, publish it and move on with our lives because the photos automatically, even the best photo introduces some distortion. So uh, the probably the main thing that we've found that people hadn't realized was just how many palimpsests there were from the battle of Kadesh. A palimpsest is a scene underneath a scene and so this is where it gets really fun because it's like detective work. And we found uh, several horses that some had been drawn, some had not, and dozens of the side profile of an unfinished Egyptian soldier. Dozens of them, like register lines of them that were probably from the scene Ramsey started to celebrate on our wall from Kadesh, like the camping scene or something. And then he didn't like that it went around the corner and didn't have room, so he got he scrapped the whole idea. But traces of the chisel marks still remain, and we see a lot more than anyone had actually suspected. Well, this is this is really cool, um, and that kind of leads me into my to my next question. But thinking about how being able to see beyond what your eyes can see on these sites and things that people have never seen before because they've not had the technology to do that is really interesting. I mean, I, I've, I, I, I'm not an Egyptologist, but I've, I've watched Egyptolo- Egyptological documentaries and things like that. But I think they, 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 they've done some of this. I think even I, I watched a, a recent one on Amazon Prime where they were, they were comparing uh, King Tut's 
funerary um, material and how it was co-opted from, I believe it was his sister who became his wife. You, if you remember the name, feel free to add it. But it's, it's kind of the same thing where you kind of, when you look at the uh, material, you can actually see below what the final representation was, and it gives the telltale signs of the original production. So it sounds like that's very interesting. And the other thing I'd say is, in terms of the context, we haven't really talked about how or what you're actually looking at. I mean, the method that you're describing can be uh, really on anything uh, that is epigraphic or pictorial, a pictorial relief on a wall uh, from, from Assyria to Egypt and everywhere in between. Um, but the relevance of what you're doing is that we're, we're talking about the very pharaoh, Merneptah, who mentions Israel for the first time in a text in the Merneptah Stele. And what you just mentioned, um, in, in the case of Ramses, and perhaps this scene of the, of the Battle of, of Kadesh, uh, this is extremely important, not only for world history, but perhaps has a definitive role to play in uh, dating the context and background of specific texts in the book of Exodus. Uh, there's been such scholars, as you know, as Josh Berman and Hoffmeyer and others who've pointed to comparisons between uh, the scenes that we have of Ramses and basically des- uh, describing it on every of his uh, every one of his big temples, as well as the the actual poem and the bulletin text itself. Uh, so this is potentially you're you're, you're getting double, right? You're getting uh, Ramses um, and the, those connections, but also the definitive one with Renepta and, and kind of reassessing all of that. It's it's very cool not to just have a um, a description of any old pharaoh, but a pharaoh that is directly related to biblical studies because of the connection with the so-called Merneptah stele. Uh, and if you have anything else to add, like what is actually on this scene and how can it relate to what we see on the Merneptah stele? I know there's a lot of discussion, but maybe you can give us a general overview of what you see on this wall, the Cor de la Cachette or Cachet, and what you have on the Merneptah stele. Okay, so uh, buckle up. This will be a little longer probably answer. I'm going to take us back to the adjacent wall, which is the south exterior wall of the Hypostyle Hall, where we have same palimpsests of Ramses from Kadesh, and they they round the corner onto, quote-unquote, my wall, which is just easier to say. Um, and, and then otherwise, on the south wall, Ramses put a, a, just kind of a smattering of his wars in in Syria, Palestine. Uh, and so then he starts the Kadesh campaign. He puts his name at the top of the wall in a great big bando text, which is still there in the corner. And then at some point he must have said, and I like how this looks with it rounding the corner. Maybe a scribe or artisan had a real bad day at that point. And he scraps the whole thing. And then he puts about uh, 10, 12 feet from the corner of the wall, maybe a little further, he, he puts the Hittite Peace Treaty, which is the next big thing for him to celebrate. You know, he doesn't, it really doesn't want to go for Kadesh Round 2. And so that's his thing to celebrate. We think he then plasters over the incomplete scene, and now the, 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 the treaty will stick out from the wall and kind of pop real nice. Well, he dies. Finally, Merneptah succeeds him has his wars in Western Asia, and is looking for a place to celebrate them in the Hypostyle Hall or the environs around it, as what good Ramesside rulers do. 
But he's not one of the rulers who's going to say, well, I'll just steal my predecessors. He's got too much respect for dear old dad and Grandpa Seti. And the only space available, as far as he can tell, is to the left and right of the peace treaty. And that's what he does. He puts his wars with West, in Western Asia on either side of the peace treaty. After all, Ramses didn't finish Kadesh, so he's not usurping anything. And if you go just right of the peace treaty, you have the only toponym that survives on our wall, which is Ishkarina for Ashkelon, plain as day, beautiful scene. It's the right, big and that's, centerpiece. And that's the one that has the, the attack, and that's possibly, it's been suggested as a possible scene of child sacrifice. I don't know if it actually is, but it shows right. the one. There's the little guy. There's actually one on the south end that's badly damaged, too. That happens a couple times on our wall. Uh, yeah, so people are trying to figure out that interpretation there. Um, but Ashkelon is, is definitely... Merneptah wants us to focus on it based on where he puts it on the wall. And then the other places attacked, we, we don't have a name for on the wall. But there's a fortified settlement on the lower register on the left of the Hittite Treaty. And on the upper register, a different fortified settlement. So we've got Ashkelon and then two places... And then at the above Ashkelon, there's an open field battle, and only from the waist down on the, the participants. That's the only portion that survives, so there's nothing really to give us good ethnic markers. If you know of a way to tell who these people are by their feet, by all means, let me know. There's nothing in their sandals that looks indicative of who they are. Um, they do have a chariot somehow, whoever they are. Uh, and then on the far right of the wall, as you're looking at it, then he brings everybody back, and then it all breaks off. And there's probably some loose blocks in the courtyard, and, and we know a couple of them. And uh, the French team that uh, work on the inner part of the wall are actually restoring some on the outer part. Uh, that, that's an ongoing project, so that's kind of cool, because we'll get to redo photos and everything when they get a couple of them put in. But that's the wall and the broad overview. And so if you bring it now to the Israel Stila, of course... He mentions right off the bat, Ashkelon, Gezer, Yenoam, and then Israel. And so that's led to a lot of debate and a pretty hotly contested one ever since Frank Yurko proposed, and he was right about this part, that this these reliefs were actually Merneptas and never Ramses. And the cartouches that survive are badly damaged, but they contain traces of Merneptas' name and his successor, Seti II. They do not show a hint of Ramsey's name other than the bando at the very top, which is a whole separate thing. Um, and we've actually got a, a, my doctoral student, Terry Nichols, and I, he's my techie guy, too. He's great help. We have an article coming out in the Digital Egyptology book that came out of a conference at the Indiana University where we analyzed the cartouches with photogrammetry, where we turned the picture on the side and checked the depths. And basically, it's not scooped out enough to account for more usurpations so that's just another reason to think ramsey's name was never there so yurko says hey this is all merneptah's kitchen himself is actually convinced by it and puts it in a footnote like in retonk later like oh yeah i, I saw that said this was ramsey's back in the day but it's not it's merneptah i'm convinced right and then peter brand and others it's really clinched at this point that it's merneptah the controversy comes in who are these top people with just the legs, because if you've got Ashkelon, Gezer, and you know him, well, what's the obvious temptation? Starts with an I. Yeah, and I'm not comfortable going there because I don't, <laughs> I don't want to just read my wall in light of Merneptah's Stila. 
Right. But we also know of no other campaign of his in this region. And the Stila is more properly about the Libyans. The Libyans are on the other side of the wall in the court, right? Where, which would be more prestigious, which syncs up with him get, voting way more lines in the Stila to the Libyans. So I think we are getting a pretty complete picture there, but hard to say who these other people are. But at any rate, it's definitely the Pharaoh who mentions Israel for the first time, and it's his only real battle scene. So yeah. What's, what's so interesting about these is you see during this period, and it, it really reminds me also of what you have in Assyria to some extent um, in the Neo-Assyrian period, where you would have lengthy inscriptions that are royal inscriptions describing their various battles, but then those would then be used in the texts as they would write them on wax tablets or, or uh, other types of, of, of documents. They would then be used as a kind of plan to put on various walls of, of temples and palaces. Uh, and so it's just really interesting when you see, at least in this case, you have the, the question of how do you relate an artifact like the Merneptah or Israel stele to this wall, which seems to have all of these really interesting connections with Ashkelon and uh, perhaps with Israel as Anson Rainey and, uh, and Yurko have suggested, although they, they differ in their opinion on this stuff. Um, but it, it, it does make sense based upon what you see in the wider uh, world, not only in Egypt, but in, in other parts where you have big reliefs with pictures of cities. Uh, it's always nice when the name is right is preserved right beside it to to help us out. You know, it also reminded me of uh, I'm a huge uh, Tolkien nerd, um, and so uh, when when I was when I was reading one of his more recent ones, I, I think it may have been the Children of Hurin or something along those lines. And in the opening line, he talks about having to read back through his father's, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien's writings and he's having to go read it sideways and read it upside down because he he would write and not and not waste any paper so he's trying to pull off earlier versions of the hobbit and earlier versions of these different accounts and it's the same guy that you're you're looking at over his lifetime as he recycled these things and how much more complicated is it when you're talking about multiple generations of pharaohs sharing and then defacing and then reshaping it to to make what they want it to look like and it's it's just also fascinating it's this it's this uh really big jigsaw puzzle we often like to talk about in archaeology that um it's kind of like putting a a puzzle together except 95 percent of the puzzle pieces are missing and the box is also gone um but we have an we have a vague idea of how somebody put it together so maybe we could put it this way here you've got all the maybe most of the puzzle pieces but it's it's all jumbled up and all the puzzle designers themselves couldn't agree on what it looked like <laughs> yeah exactly well said <laughs> and we got a lot of the puzzle because of the battle scenes but we don't have a couple of the key pieces of the details like the dream would be we find some blocks they allow excavations at some point um and then there's there's an inscribed block with a toponym on it that's like gotta go on our wall and it's like hey that ones you know them you know like that would be awesome even better if it had israel on it that would be crazy and then there'd be like oh it's a forge you know you can imagine the reaction to that but i think at some point too on the israel thing i want the wall to speak for itself and so i'm not gonna like call it clinched that that's that. And I think Yurko and Rainey maybe overstated the case there. At the same time, at some point, if you can't advocate for another group, then who is it? 
You know what I mean? Like, it's one thing to tear apart an argument and be like, well, there's no definitive evidence. That's all true. But what's the what's the other option here? It, not linking it up with the Stila, which seems wrong. Some other just vague Canaanites that he doesn't mention. Very much possible. But that, that's pretty much it. Those are really your only options if you're playing around in Western Asia. If you want to sync it up to the Stila, which, again, I think you should be based on the other knowledge of his reign that we have. Which leads me to another point in trying to interpret it, and one of my future goals years down the road is to try to write a sort of definitive historical biography of Merneptah, kind of like Kitchen's Pharaoh Triumphant. Because I feel like to answer some of this, I need to get to know Merneptah better somehow. Right. So, no, that sounds really a interesting. A lot, lot of layers to the, that whole thing. So really the stakes are here that we already have the the earliest reference to Israel and the Merneptah Stele without going into the Berlin pedestal and those that whole yeah, discussion. Yeah, I, I think are not... But, but yeah. And I've, I've read recently that there's some suggesting now that it's even 13th century also. But, but leaving that aside, what potentially you could have um, on this wall is a picture, the earliest picture uh, of Israel depicted... Um, but again, it's not definitive, and the question is, uh, if it's depicting a Canaanite or an Israelite, and again, there's a follow-up question is, what's the difference? Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> true. That's, that's, a, that's a whole other, you know, a whole other discussion. At that but, time, that's my, kind of my joke about the, the feet, right? It's like, well, what would, what would the wall be able to do for us here unless we get the toponym or the people name or something on a block somewhere? Yeah, but definitely exciting things. And the other thing I wanted to ask you is about excavations at Karnak itself. You mentioned that it would be great to excavate again. Were there actual excavations of the wall? Or is, I mean, in some ways it's always been up like it is now to some extent because it's such a massive, uh, such a massive structure. But how did that area remove sand? I wouldn't, I don't know if I would call that an excavation. Now, the French team that are helping with the block restoration, um, which I leave to them. They're marvelous at that. I wouldn't want to touch that. <laughs> um, it'd be fun to help put it together, but I mean, the physical doing it, you know, correctly, it's great that they're able to do that. They actually have been able to dig a trench a little ways out from the wall in the last year or so, but I haven't been back since, so I'll be curious to see um, if anything comes of that. But that's just part of their sort of solidifying the foundation. And if they happen to find something, that would just be a bonus. Um, our overall bigger project has gotten permission one year to use uh, ground-penetrating radar to check for square blocks, like anything that looks like, oh, a person made this, um, and in the court, in the actual hype-style hall itself. And we're hoping one year that they'll let us do that out at our wall. But the officials, and I can see why, they don't want a lot of digging around by the wall for fear of it toppling. And so I think it's pretty hard to get that kind of a permission. But we'll see. Yeah, and it's really interesting. I mean, you mentioned that Karnak is probably the most impressive site in really all of the ancient Near East, at least in terms of its architecture and the amount of inscriptions that are there. Um, and it's kind of... There's an interesting parallel, I would say, with with what you have in Jerusalem, where you can excavate the Temple Mount, and you can't really do much with it other than observe architectural changes from the outside. Where in the case of Karnak, potentially you could excavate alongside these fine blocks that have fallen off over the years, and presumably, if they fell off early, would be very well preserved as they as they lie face down in the in the sand. But who's to say there's not earlier structures directly beneath that are on completely different lines that lie um, that lie uh, uninvestigated and so it's a, another way of even thinking about 
really what is uh, out there in terms of what we don't know and what hasn't been found. And that's exciting. I remember uh, when I was an undergrad student of reading about Albright, uh, William Foxwell Albright, famous biblical archaeologist, opining that he that all the discoveries were going to be made before he would get old enough and have his PhD to go find them himself. Uh, well, here we are a hundred years gone <laughs> and there's much, much, much more still waiting. Uh, and there, are, it's a, there will always be a need to continue to investigate these things. Uh, one thing I did kind of want to swing around to uh, so that our, our listeners are aware of is the, you mentioned the Hittite Treaty of Ramses II. Uh, this is a very significant uh, treaty, and I won't go into all the ins and outs of that, but it's actually preserved in a couple of different forms. Um, one is, of course, the Egyptian version, and then the Hittite version, which was found at the capital of the Kingdom of Hatti. Uh, this was the, the Hittites of the, of, the, of the Late Bronze Age, we're talking about, in the 13th century. Um, and they have the top part of this treaty, uh, which actually existed in silver plates, uh, probably in the palace and temples of both uh, Ramses and uh, and in 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 Hatti, but it turns out that the Egyptian version is much more complete. And one of the interesting connections about the treaty from the Egyptian side of things is it actually includes the blessings and the cursings that are play a role in the. Uh, in, in the debate about the dating of the book of Deuteronomy that Kenneth Kitchen and, and many other scholars have pointed to. And so in, in some ways, the most important feature of that wall is the one that Ramses left in this Hittite treaty, which is so interesting in, in part of this whole discussion about the dating of covenant and the covenant features, uh, such as the historical prologue and especially those blessings and cursings. Um, and so anyway, I just wanted to highlight that because people may not be aware that when they eventually are able to visit places like Karnak, there's a number of very important things to look at, even on the wall that you're describing. Yeah, it's kind of wild to think that we have the Hittite Treaty, hopefully, that we get to start working on soon. And then something that probably connects to Merneptah Stila. I mean, that's two of the most important historical documents from all of Egyptian history. So definitely, definitely blessed indeed. Definitely. Uh, and very exciting stuff. Well, let me, let me shift gears a bit. And then as we, as we end, what are some of the problems that you see among biblical scholars with regards to their lack of knowledge of Egyptology? Uh, what are some, some issues that you see there that you could address? Uh, I think this one I'll say is about to kind of for both fields until again fairly recently, and I think it is changing for the positive. Both fields are a little too insular, as I mentioned already. Egyptologists have kind of been like, well, we've got so much data to sort of our own, um, but but the the ancient world wasn't that insular, right? Like and now, so there's a lot more coming out of the late bronze connections and even earlier eras. So I think that's starting to change. For biblical scholars specifically, I think. I'm just going to give you two things to not take forever here. Number one, don't be so wedded to old theories about the composition of the text, especially speaking to the Pentateuch or the Deuteronomistic history, that you shy away from the Egyptological clues in the text. Like the loan words in the birth of Moses, right? The reed basket, the rushes on the river, right? There's, these are totally borrowed from Egypt. That needs to be explained. And if you're too committed a priori to, you know, a, a late date or, a, you know, something along those lines, 
those can be like weird things to try to account for, uh, but they're there. And so let's let's let the text speak for itself and consult all the compranda and not just have that previous commitment. But again, I think it has gotten somewhat better. But there's it's still an old idea that dies very slowly, I think. And then secondly, I think the idea of Egyptian ideology is sometimes key ideas in Egyptian ideology are sometimes misunderstood by biblical scholars. So, for example, ma'at, right, as the fundamental undergirding principle of, of pharaonic behavior is a really important thing to keep in mind. And, and the idea of ideology and propaganda in the first place, for the Egyptians, propaganda only served the purpose if it was rooted in something in the past. And yes, they could embellish it and then just blow it completely out of proportion to fit their ideological agendas. But they didn't usually just make it up whole cloth, right? And so, like, we, we hear propaganda or ideology, and they're almost, like, have a negative connotation that I don't think fits the Egyptian mindset at all. And then I would say, um, on a related note, when it comes to something – so this is, that's, that's one big point. The second big point, I guess, would be understand that Egyptian history isn't monolithic, to the degree that I think it's sort of assumed like, oh, well, the Egyptians would never do X, Y, or Z because they didn't in the 18th dynasty. They must never do it in the wake of the new kingdom. You're talking 400 years later. A great example of this is the idea that Solomon marries an Egyptian princess. Oh, well, the Egyptians don't do that. Right, in their heyday, but right now they're weak and they're looking for an alliance and diplomacy and it's just some basic stuff that historians understand about continuity and change, and yet I see people who are usually from the skeptical side of things when it comes to the Bible's historical value constantly repeating these old refrains about, oh, they wouldn't do this, they wouldn't do this. That's only based on Amenhotep II's text 400 years earlier, right? Like, any historian would be like, well, hang on, what's your 400 years? You've got to prove your steps of transmission down to that now era, to make that claim. And it's just thrown out there like it's, well, it's Egyptian. It must have all been the same. And I think there's a lot more change than people think on things like that. Yeah. I think, I think a good parallel to this is like, okay, what do Christians think about baptism between the years, uh, one, one AD to 400, mm-hmm. uh, or any other period, or even if we said from 1500 yeah. <laughs> AD to today, what, 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 what do they Christians? think about baptism? <laughs> right. Uh, or what, yeah, yeah. Which Christians, uh, who's, who are you talking about? And, and I think that historical context is so vital to, to, to get to those nitty gritty discussions. But the problem is in, in really archeology span in general, but Egyptology also is even with the wealth that exists, uh, you, oftentimes, your closest parallel in terms of an event to comparing it to the Bible may be centuries earlier or centuries later. And so you're still left with uh, having to try and make these connections. But I, I think what you're getting at, and I would agree, is that there needs to be a healthy level of doubt or skepticism that your conclusion that because Amenhotep II did it in the in the at the end of the 15th beginning of the 14th century uh, so therefore it, it applies to Solomon uh, in the in the middle of the 10th century it just doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to be that way so right you got to do a lot more to demonstrate that than just repeat the quote you know um, so that's just it was just one example that sprung to mind yeah but I think, no that's 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 but well, thank you all right thank you been great.
You've been listening to OnScript's Biblical World Podcast. If you enjoy this show, please show your support by giving us a rating on iTunes or wherever you listen. You can support the show by visiting onscript.study slash donate. Until next time, keep digging.